G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies or CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. And just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do it in the studio. So our apologies there. We're still in the pandemic and it's still a bit awkward going into the studio um, particularly when we've got more than one person being interviewed. So we're very lucky today. We have two people alongside of me uh, who are going to be uh, telling you a lot of interesting things. So today what I'd like to do is introduce you to two graduate students who want to talk about an initiative they are involved in. And I'm not going to tell you about that just yet. We'll get to that a little bit later. So you're just going to have to wait a bit. But before that, though, let's meet them and find out what their graduate study research is. So firstly, please meet Emily Savenka, who is doing a Master of Science in Biology under the supervision of Dr. George DiCenzo, and Kristen Hayward, who is also in her second year of a Master of Science in Biology under the supervision of Dr. Stephen Lockheed. Welcome to Grad Chat, Emily and Kristen. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and I say this quite often, they're looking a little worried, but they shouldn't be because I keep saying to everyone, this is called Grad Chat for a reason. We're just having a, a bit of a chat. So all's going to be just fine. So let, let's get started with you, Emily. I'm going to put you on the hot seat first, so to speak. I want to talk about your research and you're using and I'm going to get you to explain some of this, the power of molecular biology to optimize bacterial production of bioplastic with the CO2. So with that, can you break it down a little bit for us? So first of all, what is molecular biology? So molecular biology is the study of the itty bitty little parts that make biology work the way that they do. So it's the study of metabolic reactions, proteins, enzymes, and all these things that come together to make life, life. That is tiny, isn't it? Amazing with the biologists, they get microscopes out and go for it. So that's the first part, molecular biology. What is bioplastic? So I think that different people have a different idea of what bioplastics mean, but the general school of thought right now is that a bioplastic is something that can be degraded properly. So when it breaks up into itty bitty pieces, it actually gets consumed by whatever's in the soil or around. Although some people say, for example, that bioplastics are just things that can be made out of corn or something or biological material. But I don't think that that's the full picture, really. Right. Yes, because normally when we think about plastics, of course, it's all those plastic bags that end up in the dump and in the oceans, which isn't good because they're not degrading, as you said. So if we can find an alternative solution, I'm assuming that's where we're going with this, finding an alternative solution. <laughs> exactly. So the bioplastic that I'm working with is called polyhydroxybutyrate or PHB, and it's pretty fantastic. It is made naturally in the bacterium that I'm using, Cyanorhizobium melilotti. 
So Esma Lilati, it uses PHB inside of itself, kind of in the same way that we use fat to store energy or reducing power. So it's already something that's in the soil. And if you grow enough of these bacteria enough, and if you grow enough Esma Lilati and you extract the PHB, then you can process it to make plastic. And it degrades just out there in nature, just like if it was in bacteria. That's brilliant. So how far along are you with that? I mean, because the Master of Science is is only two years for you. I'm one year in right now. Oh, you're one year in. It's it's uh, Kristen who's in the two year. Okay, so you've still got a year to go, which is awesome. So what are you, have you got all your samples and things? Have they been given to you or do you have to go and collect them yourself? So the first thing that I did was to delete a gene that broke down PHB within the bacteria. So okay. now they're a little bit better at accumulating it. And I've spent the last while just trying to convince it in any way that I can to live on formate. So I'm not directly feeding them CO2, but we're partnered with Dr. Kao Din's lab and they can electrochemically generate formate from CO2. So it's a bit of teamwork effort. We're passing the baton. They make the formate from CO2 for us and then we feed it to the bacterium and then we can hopefully make PHB out of it. This is one of the things that we're always loving to hear is when there's, you know, that co- collaboration that goes on between different labs, either within the same university or with other universities. So it's great that you're doing that. Who, who decided that you needed the CO2 to help with this, help with your process? Well, this whole project is, it's a collaboration with George DeShenzo's lab, Dr. Cowden's lab and Dr. Lawrence Yang's lab. So they put their brains together and they figured out the pipeline before I joined. That's great. And did you expect to do this kind of work when you first decided to do your master's? Is this something you sort of, because sometimes people start off a project, a small project in their undergrad, last year of their undergrad, and then can want to continue it. Or is this a totally new research project that you wanted to do? Well, I used to work at an environmental museum at the biosphere in my undergrad. And we heard a lot that, you know, everybody can make change within their life. And we all have to fight for our own little corner of the world in any way that we can. And I was studying molecular biology at Concordia University at the time. And I was in my late teens when I decided that I had to do everything I could to work on the climate crisis. And I was going to approach it from biotechnology and molecular biology, which were already things that I was becoming very passionate about. So I knew that I wanted to do a sustainability biotechnology themed master's. Um, It's a little bit different from what I did for my undergraduate thesis, um, but I had to go out and find the opportunity for myself. And now I'm here and I'm really, really grateful to get the chance to do this kind of work. That's fantastic. I love the background of how people get into a particular field of study. And so that's great that you've done that. And, uh, you know, this word sustainability and and, uh, the climate and everything is so big these days and rightfully so so uh, I'm glad that you're following your own passion and realizing you can play a part to it so thanks on that Emily what we're going to do now is flip over to Kristen put her on the hot seat now as we say so Kristen your research is on polar bear genomics and genetic monitoring yeah so so it sounds like you both like working on the micro level of biology which is another one with a microscope 
on the desk somewhere, I'm sure. So tell me what, just to help people, what does mm-hmm. genomics mean in, in the branch of microbiology? Yeah, kind of broadly, it's working with really large amounts, usually, of genetic data. So when you zoom in on the DNA, we look at which building blocks exist at a certain spot. And then we can look all, I guess, down the DNA and ask that question over and over again and kind of get like a genetic barcode like you would see at a grocery store for the organism you're working with. And then that way you're able to tell them apart. You're able to study them and their populations, track their movement, things like that. So you mentioned something called, mm-hmm. um, actually didn't mention it just now, but in some of the information you provided me, they had this word for the word called genomics assay or investigative, investigative procedure for assessing mm-hmm. um, the polar bears. So, and, and using scat samples, poo, <laughs> for, the, for the rest of us. <laughs> so, so. Are you actually going up north to collect these samples or these samples have been given to you? You know, what is the whole process of so you can actually sit under and look under that microscope or or, or the data on a computer or something? How what is that process that you're looking for or doing? Yeah, so it's actually my project is part of a much larger project called Bear Watch and it's a collaborative project between multiple labs. And one of the things that made me most interested in this project was that it's one of its main goals is to provide tools to community led programs. So a big part of this is northern communities are the ones on the land. They're collecting samples. Okay. And ultimately those samples get sent down to our lab and I do a lot of the genetics work on it, how we can identify the bear, how we can study their population. And there's a couple other students in our lab that work on things like diet. And then those samples, small chunks of them also get sent off to other labs to look at things like microplastics or contaminants, parasitic loads, stuff like that. So when you say you're tracking them, you're tracking them to see what areas they're they're moving along or that particular polar bear and if and then of course with breeding and things you know how far north how far east or west that they travel is that the kind of thing that you're wanting to find out of how from one polar bear where's the rest of that dna ended up yeah i mean i think there's lots of things that we want to find out and we can find out about polar bears just based off their scat samples which is part of the reason it's so exciting to be working with it one thing is knowing which particular bears are coming back to communities so you can tell that he means coming back too close to communities so you can tell which ones are kind of staying in the similar area but a big thing that impacts population structure is dispersal so you know where bears are moving and the world's polar bear populations right now are kind of you know split into these man-made 19 management units or subpopulations that are based on science but we're missing a lot of the information we need to fully understand you know what is going on. There's a lot of subpopulations that are data deficient. 
are, or we're not really sure if they're increasing or decreasing in density. So understanding where bears are ending up dispersal wise will give us a better understanding of that for sure. So, I mean, I assume in any, any species, you want to keep the the species strong. Yeah. So you just talked about different zones that they're in. Mm -hmm. Do, does that mean you're saying certain families of polar bears will only stick in one region, but wouldn't you want them sort of spreading out and spreading their seeds, so to speak, in lots of different populations so we don't have the same genetics going around a small group? So when I say subpopulation, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're staying in that one area. So you're definitely seeing bears that are crossing in between those different areas. Those subpopulations, I guess it's a bit difficult, but a lot of the time you're seeing it kind of formed around the landscape, right? You'll have kind of like an area that's mostly ice, uh, shorelines, and that'll be one subpopulation. You'll have another shoreline area that's another. So it kind of is framed around the landscape. And they're just easier ways for us to conceptualize management. Um, But we're trying to see, you know, exactly how informative that is whether maybe certain subpopulations are very genetically close or are even genetically differentiated at all. Uh, The literature right now says there's three main genetic clusters. So not 19, but three big ones, and then there's subtle differentiation in between. So there's not actually strong differentiation in between these ones. There's a lot of movement going on in between. For sure. And I'm sure, and I'm sure there's going to be more movement too as the ice caps melt and all those sorts of things. So they're getting stuck further and further inland. But lots for you to do for you and your colleagues on that. So thank you. I, you know, like I said, I really enjoy listening to some of the the stuff that you do in biology because it's so relevant. And I mean, for instance, polar bears. I mean, I don't think I want to meet one, <laughs> but they're an amazing animal and. Uh, I, I hope that hopefully they can continue to live where they are living. I want to talk to you both now about your new initiative, which I think is fascinating and kudos to both of you and your colleagues for putting this together. So you're involved in this new initiative called the Queen's Outdoor Field Experience Initiative. So can one of you tell me a little bit about why did you want to get involved in this? Emily, do you want to go first? Sure. So Coffee was founded in September of 2020, and that was right in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and a summer of Black Lives Matter protesting. And at that time, there was a lot of talk in academia about gatekeeping and barriers right here in the Ivory Tower. Right. And so we were all thinking about that, and I think we should all still continue to be thinking about that. And then Kristen and Sam started floating this idea of an initiative to make ecology and field work more accessible. Right. So I'm, I'm going to interrupt there. It's funny that you say making it more accessible because you think it would be accessible if it's part of your program, but right. clearly not. Clearly there were some barriers still. Yeah, so there are a lot of barriers. There's social barriers, cultural barriers, financial barriers, and they may not be as obvious to everybody on the surface level. But part of our initiative is trying to identify these barriers and to close the gap as much as we can. So I personally experienced some barriers myself when I was getting into the outdoors and climbing communities when I was younger. 
And I wanted to leverage everything that I'd learned in the past few years in order to try to make a difference in this. So I, like I said, I think that everyone can and should try to do what they can where they can. And uh, this seemed like a great opportunity. That's great. That's great. It's interesting too, you mentioned some things that you did before even coming into study where you already found those barriers. And when you're talking about field research, we forget sometimes if you take the word research out, there's still those barriers to get out there in the outdoors and and do what we can for the outdoors, both on a recreational point of view, um, because there's nothing better than being out in the environment, as well as, like you said, in your studies, what can you do to be in your studies? So, uh, Kristen, what about you? You know, what brought you to want to be a part of this initiative? And I mean, I know uh, if I've understood correctly from looking at the website, you're the chair of the group. So what made you want to do that? <laughs> Put that responsibility on yourself. I guess I'm currently chair. I will hopefully be graduating soon here. So we'll be passing off those duties. But as Emily mentioned, I actually started as part of the biology student council in a position called in equity, diversity, inclusion, and ingenuity graduate student representative with a colleague of mine, Sam. And I could see, you know, these issues in academia as a whole, but particularly in field research and and getting outdoors in general. Mm-hmm. I could see these barriers that I had experienced and then acknowledging my own privilege as a cis white female in science you know, I know there must be even more barriers in place for other individuals as well. And I kind of sat with that and really wanted to do something within the department to help make fieldwork and science in general more accessible and also help facilitate a safe space for people to explore those interests. So we kind of brought this idea to the committee as a whole and they said, cool. Yeah, go do it. (laughs) We're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Like, I guess, I guess we're doing this. So this is my first time doing anything like this. Like I've never, you know, tried to get something up and running from scratch. It's been a process. Uh, Emily and, you know, all the other people that we've been working with have been amazing. And it's really been like a huge team effort. Like it's, yeah, it's it's definitely not easy. But yeah, a big thing was that so I did my undergrad in biology and psychology in my in my undergrad, sorry, and I could see large differences in getting involved in biology field work versus getting involved in psychology research. There was a lot of financial barriers, there was social, there was knowledge, and I wanted to learn more about how these could be mitigated to work towards an equitable outdoors and taking field courses and being part of the climbing community as well. I was very intimidated by the financial burden, you know, all those hidden costs of getting gear and the social pressures, you know, to kind of fit into the culture that's there, get the name brand equipment and clothing. And particularly as a female as well, being like worried about seeming uneducated, like, oh, if I don't know how to use this camp stove, I'm going to look silly and people are going to assume I don't know what I'm doing. So I wanted to learn more about the other barriers that existed and what we could do about them. 
you know, to help create the space where everyone had the equal opportunity to get there in the first place and, and feel welcome. So how are you both doing this as a group? Because I know you have the website. Is it all based around the website or there is other thing in terms of giving information to put on the website for others to do? Or are you trying to also bring people together to work on some of these barriers? So because the website can be very helpful and it is helpful. I've looked at it and people, I do suggest everyone to go and have a look, www.qofei.com. I, I do suggest you go go and have a look, but there's just being able to see the information. It's getting people to say, "Okay, I want to give this a go." So, what mm-hmm. you know, how are you trying to do that? How are you going? How are you trying to encourage people outside of the website, or is it all about the website and then then going from there as a first step? I think maybe this would be a good point to talk about. We've the first thing that we wanted to do as a club was we wanted to get feedback, you know, from the community that we're aiming to benefit in the first place. Right. So we worked with Experiential Learning Hub to put together a survey that we put out to the Queen's community through different listservs, Facebook pages. And we wanted to ask, you know, what barriers people had experienced, what barriers could they perceive existing and you know, what kind of initiatives they would be interested in. And based off of those results, the big thing was just not having awareness for opportunities in the first place. So that's something that we're trying to tackle. But based on the results, we kind of adopted this three-tier approach, I guess we, we would call it, where one was we wanted to help address financial barriers by creating a lending library. Right. Another was we wanted to help address uh, social and knowledge barriers through providing resources on a website, creating awareness of that website as well. And then the third was hopefully like a seminar workshop series where we can also help address those social knowledge barriers, bring people together, learn different skills and create community. That's awesome. You know, because like I said, I have looked at the website and you talked about re- reducing the financial barriers by having this lending library. What a great thing to have. Uh, I, have you had a lot of support to be able to supply some of the equipment and things that you're wanting to use it put within the lending library? Yeah, so we've been reaching out to all sorts of organizations for the past year and people have been really excited to help out. So we've got some really, really great support from the Kingston Field Naturalists. We got a really nice bird spotting telescope from there. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, which I think we're all very excited about. We have partnerships with the Cataraki Kingston Rotary Club, the InSport Fashions Incorporated, which uh, was offering us support. Black Diamond has been a superstar partner in all of this. We talked to them. They sent us some great advice, lots and lots of uh, gear as well. And the community as well has just been like very, very helpful and nice. We've received all sorts of donations and we've been filling up our room and we've just been really blown away by how much people want to help. And we're really excited to see how this develops. That's fantastic. I mean, there's nothing better than having community support. 
and it is amazing. Sometimes we don't think about going to the community for help because we think, oh, we've got to be able to do it ourselves. So the fact that you've gone out and, and reached out to them and then as well as them coming back and saying, yeah, look, we would love to help is brilliant. So hopefully we can keep those relationships going because uh, supporters like that are fantastic. And then, you, then, of course, you have to sort of have a room, like you said, to put it all in. As, has the biology department given you a room to house all this? Yeah, we officially have a room as a couple of months ago. I It was a lot better than I think we expected. We were expecting like a small little closet. And we, we have nice <laughs> windows. It's a great location. We'll be posting, you know, where to find us when our doors officially open, which right. fingers crossed will be soon. That'll yeah. be nice, won't it, for all, for all of, particularly those of you who love being outside. It's kind of like, we've got to get out there. It's fall is coming, and it's always nice going hiking and things in the fall. And I guess some of this equipment too, this lending library, if you talk, if I go back and think about field research, you guys are always going off. Sometimes, Kristen, with the polar bear population, some of your colleagues are probably going up north to some of the campsites up there and Either, whether they're collecting plant samples or in your situation going to see where the polar bears are so you need good equipment to go up to those places for a two or three months of, of um, in the year so having this opportunity would be great I guess I need to ask you know is there some sort of clarification for people wanting to lend because you know talking about it's again about um, re- reducing barriers some people can clearly afford it and so how are you how are you going to figure out who who has priority over this equipment for instance the prioritization process is still something that I guess is a work in a progress we're you know trying to figure out the best way to approach this mm-hmm. the main thing we said was our first and foremost priority was helping mitigate those barriers for field research itself. So, you know, you have an undergraduate field trip and you have a, I guess, mandatory field trip where you go and collect data and then the rest of the semester is built on that data that you've collected. If you have a student go out and they don't have appropriate foot attire or apparel, that's going to impact their experience. And if that's their first experience with the outdoors, that's going to set the tone particularly. So that's something where, you know, we're going to prioritize if there's stuff like there's classes like that, or if there's someone doing field work for the summer or for, you know, part of the research project, that's going to take precedent. We're trying to figure out how we want to do that probably something along the lines of a note on the website to book as soon as you know you might need something for your research but other than that like you know we want to get people outdoors as well in general so that will be a second tier as well well maybe emily you can talk about the fact because i noticed on the website too you've got some great resources of you know the various hiking maps and things for in and around kingston and region a little bit further so was that intentional to sort of give opportunities or to make more aware not just those of us who are in an academic institution but the general community of saying you know have you thought about checking out this place or this place or this place yeah exactly we think that 
you know, with the gear, because we're a little bit limited in our scope, we're just trying to really target people that need help for field work or for field research. But like Kristen said, our main goal is to make the outdoors more accessible mm-hmm. and to reduce barriers and to just kind of do whatever we can in that respect. So having a website with all sorts of resources that anybody in the Kingston or outside community could uh, check um, is really important to us as well. I know that when I moved here, it was really overwhelming trying to get situated in what to do, where to go, what is even possible around Kingston. So we are just really trying to create a centralized space for people to kind of start wrapping their head around everything that they can do or to get a bit more information and uh, just try to help get people outside. Which is fantastic again. And I guess the third part of one of the things that you, you guys mentioned was the seminar series so is that something you would do out at cubes so queen's university biology station or you want to do it um, in other places around kingston so it's so people can catch a bus to it accessibility is really important to us so ideally we would put on seminar series either over zoom or in person but in a place where as many people both within the kingston and queen's community can join and outside of it if uh, there's interest there as well So we don't really know exactly what we're going to start with. We're working on the seminar series right now, but we've had a lot of great input from people. We're thinking maybe Zoom panel discussions, or maybe if we want to foster community just in at Queens, we might have some small competitions and workshops, maybe tent building or camping or cooking. Sign me up. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, a bit of a work in progress, but we just want as many people engaged as possible. I love that, I love that idea, in both either on Zoom or in person, so depending on what we're allowed to do. But I also think it would, some of you would have some great experience to share to, say, elementary school or high schoolers of going in. You know, I, they used to have, in my day, outdoor education, but uh, being part of that as well and sort of getting those kids to come and learn a bit more from the people who are in it all the time. So I think you've got some great opportunities there, putting the word out to both the school system as well as in the local community with, say, some of your partners that you've got in the lending library. I'm sure that they would love to be able to help push some of the seminars and workshops that you're doing. So like I said, right at the beginning, kudos to both of you and your colleagues who are a part of this initiative. I wish you the best of luck. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely fabulous. And I know Kristen's in her last year, but uh, she's helped set up a, a great little initiative to, for, to hopefully continue for many, many years. So thank you both for, for coming on and sharing what you do in your own research, as well as what you're doing on the side to sort of help other people to be able to access field research in the same ways, what they should be able to do to be able to learn and get enthused by you so thank you both Emily and Kristen thank you so much for having us thank you I just wanted to add one thing in that our website www.coffee.com as we call it q-o-f-e-i-e-i is going to be continuously updated so we're going to be adding resources about the barriers to outdoor based learning we hope it'll be a hub you know, if organizations want to check in too and learn. But we really should give credit here to our colleague, Hannah Thompson, who has been a workhorse on this website and has done amazing work on that. But yeah, 
you'll definitely have yeah. to check out those <laughs> new editions. Please do, everyone, because like I said, it's fabulous. I, I was getting a little carried away and as, as I was going through it. So uh, keep checking back because it is one of those websites, as Kristen said, that you should keep looking at because it's going to be continually updated. And, of course, when the seminars are all sorted out, they will be going up. So it would be a great one to look at. So that's coffee.com, <laughs> coffee with a Q. Uh, so, so, so thank you very very much so that's it everyone a another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google podcast spotify or stitcher just type in a grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.